0: Welcome back to the Camino Podcast, episode 43. I'm Dave Whitson. Nobody asked me my name. I've discovered a lot of interesting people while learning about pilgrimage, but Anne Sieben, perhaps more famously known as the Winter Pilgrim, is genuinely unique. Her pilgrimage life started with journeys on the Camino de Santiago and the Via Francigena. Of course, even in those cases, she started in Germany and England, respectively. She was just getting started, though. In the succeeding years, she embraced the idea of operating as a mendicant pilgrim, walking without money, and operating with total faith in the goodness of her fellow humans to support her along the way. Given her wealth of experiences... And her storytelling verve, not to mention my wide ranging list of topics I wanted to ask her about, our conversation covers a ton of ground, just like she does. Ultimately, though, we arrive at a subject that I think will be of particular interest to US pilgrims as I record this in late June 2020, when the EU has wisely informed us that we won't be welcome for a while. And that subject is pilgrimages in North America. If you're stuck here for a while, and you're looking for a socially distanced walk, Anne has ideas. And hey, if you're not from here, consider coming in the future. We'll get our crap together eventually, I hope. That's the episode. An hour of total inspiration. Here we go. Anne Sieben, a.k.a. the Winter Pilgrim, is a mendicant pilgrim and a founder of the Society of Servant Pilgrims. Over the last 13 years, she has walked, and no, this is not a misstatement, 43,000 miles through 55 different countries. Wow. Hi, Ann, Thanks for making the time for this.
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: <laughs> so there's a lot to talk about here, obviously. There uh, we- is. What first drew you to the idea of pilgrimage?
1: It was because I was living and working in Europe for many years, just a normal career woman. And it's in the vernacular of Western Europe. There's magazines on the newsstands, made-for-TV movies, references everywhere, not to mention the symbols. If you're in Paris or Lyon or big cities or small cities, there are scallop shell and crossed-key symbols just built into the fabric of these cities, and it's just part and parcel of the culture of Western Europe. So I became exposed to it in that way. And then I was on a sabbatical in my 20th year of my career. I took it as a sabbatical year, which is not that uncommon in Europe either. And at the end of that year, I had some time left kind of unprogrammed. And I happened to be in Spain And I happened to have gone to Zaragoza, which is all of the tradition of St. James the Greater being in Iberia was in Zaragoza. And so I was so impressed with that city and the the story of St. James that I thought, you know, I hear about this pilgrimage to Santiago so often. I've got an extra couple of weeks on my hands and I just sent my Italian loafers off and got some boots. (laughs) And I took a train or a bus to Leon, and jumped on the pilgrimage route there in October, not knowing anything really about it. And so the people I met along the way, like right from the get go, there was someone in the pilgrim house in Leon and she's just like, oh, you rookie, you need to get a credential. Let me go and get you a credential, a Polish woman. And then, you know, I was walking at the same pace, you know, you get your Camino family with these Belgian men. And because I had been living and working in Europe I spoke several languages adequately enough for the pilgrim tables anyway. <laughs> so I, in late October at the time, this was 2006, at the time I really enjoyed the camaraderie and the pilgrim houses in the evening and I could speak with many groups of people and I really enjoyed the fact that I could speak The Polish woman would speak to me in English, and I would speak to the Belgians in French, and one of them would translate to Italian, and then an Italian would translate to Spanish. That was just fantastic. I mean, that is age old. And I can imagine centuries ago in Western Europe, there were many more languages, all the different dialects. So to have that language capacity was just very important. And then I enjoyed the solitude in the day of walking along the pilgrim route. I did not like the kind of sense you can get on the Camino Francaise of being a cog in an economic wheel. You just gotta obey and do what you're gonna do and follow the giant yellow arrows and you're gonna get downstream. You know, it just kinda seemed very mechanical to me, but I really liked the other aspects. So I should've gone back to work in that November. (laughs) But I called and said, I'm gonna call you in springtime. And I got some better gear and I got myself to London before Christmas. And then I walked alone the Via Francigena from Canterbury to Rome to arrive in Rome for Holy Week. And so many pilgrims I met along northern Spain in October. I just presumed there would at least be some pilgrims on the Via Francigena over the winter. And there were not. I did not see a single pilgrim until I arrived in Rome. (laughs) (laughs) But I enjoyed it. I enjoyed that pilgrimage. I count as pilgrimage number one, the Via Francigena over winter. I crossed the Alps on January 27th in four meters of snow, so like 15 feet of snow (laughs) on snowshoes. It took me five days to walk up and one day to sit and slide down. (laughs) It was a lot of fun. But there, the difference was, as I could really connect with the people along the way. In the villages, in the, the towns, I could ask directions. I wore the scallop shell on my backpack And then I had cross keys on a ribbon around my neck. Everybody knew I was a pilgrim. And I realized, and this is a a winter pilgrimism, you can quote me on it, a silent pilgrim does the world no good. You know, there was the difference being in the Alps with a backpack. You could be any trekker, any adventure seeker, any hiker, or you know, whatever. But to have the pilgrim symbols on and to announce I am a pilgrim, That's what makes the connections. That's what really resonated with me, engaging with people along the way. And of course, then the people of France and Switzerland and Italy, they taught me how to be a pilgrim. They've been hosting pilgrims for 1200 years, even more. I mean, those are old pilgrim routes and I just really loved it. So once again, I said, boss, I'm gonna call you next spring. And so it took me four winter pilgrimages So the first I did was Canterbury to Rome. The next winter, to really do the Camino de Santiago properly, I started in Aachen, Germany, at the tomb of Charlemagne, who was the one who got everything started. So I started at his tomb and kind of followed the pathway down, the traditional pathways, all the way to Santiago. I was all alone until I got to the Pyrenees, and then suddenly there were pilgrims everywhere. (laughs) I just kind of rushed through that part, because when you're on the Francaise, you don't really have an opportunity, even in the winter, to connect with the people along the way so much. You connect with other pilgrims, and that's great. That's really rich. But I really enjoyed connecting with the people who, you know, as I'm— going beside a farm, talking with the farmer, and he'll invite me in for a glass of wine or a cup of coffee that then becomes a glass of wine. And, oh, why don't you stay the night? (laughs) You know, and this connection with the people. So that second one was Aachen, Germany to Santiago. Then the third pilgrimage, I turned around again, and I thought, well, following the paths of these saints is great. I need another saint, (laughs) another apostle. Who, you know, what were the good stories? And I found a copy of a first century Roman map. And I believe the apostles would have seen these maps. I believe that the Romans in every town city they conquered, they would have put a mosaic of their land. So everyone knew how impressive they were. And everything north of the Black Sea was listed as terra incognita. And the little brother of St. Peter, St. Andrew, is said to have gone a thousand kilometers into Terra Incognita. And I thought, there's a guy. <laughs> I wanna follow his path. <laughs> so I flew to Kiev, Ukraine, and that is no longer the Western European pilgrim tradition that's not part of their culture. Oh, it was great though. Oh, I just loved it. Just totally free form, no pilgrim houses. There were some monasteries and there were little village churches. That was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful experience. That was a game changer for me. So I followed that from Kiev around Crimea, so the, the north of the Black Sea, Romania, Bulgaria, through Turkey to Istanbul, and then up along the mainland of Greece following the path of the Apostle St. Paul, so that Roman road is still there. <laughs> and she walk along it, and I walked along it. Oh, that was so fantastic. And I went over the shoulder of Mount Olympus and over the shoulder of Mount Parnathus, all these great historical places. It was just great. Step by step, life at three miles an hour. That's the thing. And that took five months, five countries, five languages. That's a step up.
0: (laughs) No kidding.
1: No, that captivated me. I mean, because I was connecting with the people. I was welcomed into family homes, no pilgrim houses. Welcomed by everybody, and you know I struggled. There were a lot of difficulties, but smile is a universal language, and you start with a smile, you can muddle your way through. <laughs> so then I came back to the U.S. and back to Denver, where I'm based, and. I would tell people about these experiences, how people would just invite me into their home and they would say, here, you sleep next to grandmother. She's really fat. She'll keep you warm all night. <laughs> and it was really cold on those Russian steps. <laughs> so, you know, you just get absorbed into humanity, just trust and we're just all people. And that was great lesson learned. But people here would say, no, you can't really do that here. We're not that nice. And I said, yes, we are that nice. So we have no apostles in the U.S., but we've got some saints. (laughs) So I decided to walk from Denver to the largest pilgrim destination outside of Rome in the Christian world, and that's the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. So from Denver to Mexico City, three months, good time, Chihuahua Desert. It was great. (laughs) And I finished that. It was very successful. And yes, people in the U.S. are very kind. People in Mexico are very kind. It's not to say every step is easy and every person is friendly, but I've never felt afraid for my life. That's for sure. And I've dealt with far more rattlesnakes and mountain lions and scorpions and these things than I have bad people. The bottom line, people are good. So you just smile. You don't judge. You don't demand. Smile again. (laughs) The first thing the world will do is offer food to a pilgrim. So that's never a problem, you know, and then you take it from there. You need shelter at night. So somebody is going to say, oh, come in. We have some space for you. Or here, let's go into the church. And there's a little room in the back for the priest, but he's not here. You sleep there. You just something. So I, after that pilgrimage, kind of went away uh, uh, on kind of like a discernment retreat. You know, what am I doing here? Because by then, when I called the company and said, Yeah, (laughs) I'm not sure I want to come back. They pretty much said, and who are you again? (laughs) It was okay, it was good. (laughs) I also learned in my trip in Eastern Europe, Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, Turkey, Greece. By then I had pretty well run out of money, but it didn't matter anyway. There's not like an ATM very often and there are no hotels or a few restaurants You know, that you just don't have these opportunities to spend the money, even if you had it. And you can't really see through my voice. But I I lie and say I'm (laughs) 5'1". I'm not quite. (laughs) So as a small woman, you know, I can't protect myself. I mean, I can, but I'm very vulnerable out there. I don't want some teenage boys even seeing me with $5 to pay for a cup of coffee and a muffin, you know, because then they'll think she's got money. No, I don't. <laughs> so if I do, I give it to you. You know, there's no no need for any kind of violence here. So I just realized I don't want to carry cash, especially going countries to countries and you're exchanging all the time. It's a big burden. But it's a big burden to think about what are you paying for? You know, it's I got a bucket of money, therefore I can demand things my way. No, that's not the Pilgrim way. The Pilgrim way is I'm here. I need a place to sleep tonight. Can you help? And you accept whatever. And when the whole family is sleeping in the goat house, I'm invited to sleep in the goat house too. (laughs) And if I came in with a bucket of money and said, I am a touristic pilgrim, I need a place to stay, and I have standards, well, they would be ashamed to offer me the goat house. But I'm happy to be in the goat house. The goats keep us all warm. (laughs) So, you know, the money isn't the thing. The money sort of alters the interhuman relationship. You know, exchange of money, there's a direction of that flow of money, and that alters things. So I realized that being a penniless pilgrim, a mendicant pilgrim, is the way to operate. I'm too small to protect it. It's too much of a mental burden to try to manage it and make the decisions. Oh, I should leave this goat herd family a little bit of money. Well, how much do I leave? And how am I thinking? You know? And then it could be insulting them. You know, if I left something I thought was good enough, you know, it's all judgment. No, there's no room for that. So in being a penniless pilgrim, afterwards, I realized to be true to what it is I'm doing, I've got to truly denounce all material possessions. And the word for that is mendicant. So St. Francis was a mendicant, St. Francis of Azizi, St. Dominic was a mendicant. There are other mendicants and mendicant orders. But... It's not completely gone out of vogue. There are modern mendicants as well. The Franciscans are no longer modern mendicants, but <laughs> the scallop shell on the backpack used to indicate there's nothing of value in the backpack because a pilgrim would not and should not carry anything of value. So as pilgrim backpacks get bigger, they might hold things like laptop computers. <laughs> and if there's a scallop shell on that <laughs> backpack, then that's sort of a false message there. but. Yeah, the world is the way the world is. But the mendicancy of it, the denouncing material possession, wow, that just releases everything. There's no burden left on your soul when you've got nearly nothing. Because then you're filled with love and joy and low expectations. There's no bar lower than the mendicant's bar.
0: (laughs) When I have been in positions of, of needing to ask for help, one of the things that's occurred to me is that feels particularly burdensome, that the process of paying for a service, in my mind, I'm guilt-free. But when I ask someone for something, it's, it's painful. What's going on with that?
2: Here's a, a difference. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know you all that well. But a di- difference could be, is especially as Americans, we just have this sense of self-sufficiency. And so it's kind of in our fabric to be self-sufficient. And it's not an easy step off that mat, you know, to just say, oh, now I'm not self-sufficient. Now I truly do put myself at the mercy of humanity. One six foot something white guy, strong, young, absolutely fit guy was just amazed at what I do. And he said, I get it. It's like that game when you're little children and you say, here, turn around, fall back into my arms and I'll catch you. And sometimes, you know, they'll let you go nearly to the crash into the ground, and then they scoop you up before you hit. And he said, that's what you do every day with humanity. That's what I do. I fall back into the arms of humanity, absolutely full of faith that humanity will catch me. And I have never, ever not found a place to sleep at night. I've never gone a day without food. Usually food is a burden because they're just giving me more than I can carry or eat. (laughs) So I try to arrange a little... Candlelight suppers with the homeless people. <laughs> Please take this food away from me because it's just too much. So I believe it. And I've let go of the idea that I must be self sufficient. Now I'm a small, middle aged woman. I can't eat that much. <laughs> they might see a big, strong guy and think, oh, good Lord, <laughs> we don't have that much food. <laughs> or they, I have to believe because I'm so vulnerable, I have to believe it's going to work out okay. And therefore, my vulnerability is very clear to people. So, you know, if I go to a church and it's locked up or someone there's like grumpy and says, get out of here, we don't deal with pilgrims. And next door is the fire station, big, strong guys. Little me is going to go into the fire station and say, hey, guys, (laughs) I need a place to stay. And they'll say, oh, we got a bunk room. Yeah, you could take it. It's not always going to be the first door you knock on. But someone's going to say, yeah, sure, come on in. But they don't ever, no one can really reasonably assume I'm a threat. So, so I think that's a difference. So I don't, I've never been a big, strong man pilgrim. So I can't say what that experience is really like. But I could say for a small, usually very exhausted woman pilgrim, <laughs> the world is very helpful. And again, I've never felt threatened. I've never not found a place to sleep. I believe people are good. And that's what I project outward with my, you know, everyone comments on my sparkling blue eyes that are saying, please take me in. I'm tired. (laughs) And so I project no fear. Now, okay, this is a flip. Put yourself in this situation. Bulgaria, the mountains, northern Turkey, Greece, packs of Anatolian savage dogs. Giant white dogs look like white German shepherds on steroids. And each one weighs like 150 pounds, bigger than me is what I'm saying. I don't know, maybe not be bigger than you, but bigger than me. (laughs) And I found them in packs of minimum six, maximum 11, all barking and frothing at the mouth, all viewing me as something to eat. And I've got to face them down and get through the valley. You can never let that sense of fear grip you because they'll know. Turn that around, flip that. You find that alpha male and you make sure he has that sense of fear. And then you can see it. Then you've won. You just like walk him down. I'm just going through your territory. I mean, I might be swearing like a sailor, but (laughs) I've never not won. No blood has ever been shed. I've hit a few of them in the snouts with my walking stick. But, you know, I've had to battle sometimes four times in a day in northern Greece. They're a problem. Dozens of times I face down those packs. They have them, the behavior of wolves, you know, they're pack animals that hunt together and protect their territory. And they're not for the faint of heart. Don't try that as a rookie pilgrim. <laughs> but it's that sense of fear, you know, and you do project it and others can sense it. And it's something you have to be aware of if you're going to be out in dangerous situations on your own, which you don't have to be to be a mendicant pilgrim, mm-hmm. penniless and, uh, and unplugged. I'm an unplugged mendicant pilgrim, so I'm not carrying electronic devices with me. In order to be there, you just have to have a lot of competency in survival skills and navigational instinct and language help. But again, getting back to the smile.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I think when a lot of people are thinking about pilgrimage, and particularly the pilgrimages that manifest on the the well-walked routes in Europe these days, I think the focus is often on the internal benefit, right? I'm going to go on pilgrimage for these personal reasons. You mentioned before about wanting to be a useful pilgrim and this idea that I think mendicant pilgrimage can be of service to others. How do you see it being of service to others?
2: Well, I can tell you from my experiences, pilgrims bring hope. And pilgrims, you know, if you're out there as the society of servant pilgrims, let me just jump back just a step After I went on my pilgrimage to Mexico, Our Lady of Guadalupe, discerning, in the Middle Ages, there were the three great pilgrimages by foot, Santiago in Spain, Rome, and then Jerusalem. But at the time, 2012, you could not, an American passport holder could not walk through Syria or Libya as a pilgrim. But just then, on my discernment retreat, the Arab Spring broke out. And I don't want to say, hey, thanks, guys. (laughs) taking the opportunity then that during the Arab Spring, civil wars in all of these countries, maybe they won't be looking at visas too closely. So I had to decide I was going to commit to doing it, walking from Europe to the Holy Land so I could get that third great pilgrimage in, that great tradition that has been, you know, people have been doing it since the first century. And, you know, that's a great one. I didn't want to let that pass.
0: Can I just interrupt to point out that what kind of person looks at civil wars breaking out and thinks, this is great. Now I can travel there. I said, maybe,
2: maybe, maybe they won't look at the visas.
0: That's amazing.
2: (laughs) You know, well, opportunists. So European passport holders could up until then continue walking through Syria with some controls in place and things, but they could do it as pilgrim, but I don't know what really put me over the edge. I had to choose if I were going to start in Europe, you got to go one way or the other. You're either going to go and cross through Syria eventually or go down across Africa and cross through Libya. Those were the two blocking states. And I chose Africa. And there's an old Roman road that pretty much follows the coastline. So I started in Santiago and walked upstream <laughs> on the Via de la Plata and then crossed over into Morocco and then by and large, Went across along the border of the Mediterranean, down through the Egyptian desert monasteries, the desert fathers, across Sinai, through Israel. Okay, yada, yada, yada. Many, many difficulties. <laughs> it took six months. It involved a lot of rethink <laughs> on my route. The US Embassy only had to get involved once. <laughs> as I was held captive there in Libya and then invited to leave in 24 hours. So I had to scoot along and it was adventurous. It was wonderful. The people were great. The people were fantastic. When I got to Jerusalem, finished my pilgrimage at the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, the tradition is, and then I went to the room of the Last Supper, one of the many sightseeing places there in the old city, and I was there all alone, and I just had this great sense of clarity, you know, reflecting on all of those battles, literally, that I walked through, and all of the difficulties, and men with guns, and Instead of being like, that's done with. I'm never doing that again. It was like, yeah, now I got it. I have been tempered. I get it now. And it's not about me. It's about what I do, going and visiting these people in the desert, the Bedouins, the Berber tribal people, nomadic people, sitting with them in their huts while there's a battle happening. We hear the rockets. They're not right around. They're off in the nearest town. But they people... Felt so great because I was there. We could ignore it. No need to have fear because they've got a pilgrim in the house. They honor pilgrims. They help pilgrims. It doesn't matter. I'm a pilgrim to the Holy Land. It doesn't matter. Christian pilgrim in a Muslim household, we're going to help pilgrims. And for me to be the first white person they've ever seen, fluffy, light hair, (laughs) blue eyes, you know, it was a first, but the other is a first. That's what did it. It's a service in a sense of going to unvisited places as the other, quote, unquote, and smiling and talking with them and allaying their fears and bridging the gaps and just being human with other humans. And it never seems in any way like a burden on their family. They've got bread. They've got beans or vegetables. We're just going to smile and talk with each other. There's no need to evangelize the Christian faith. No, it doesn't matter. Whatever your faith is, if you go off as a pilgrim of faith, you are strengthening your faith. And it doesn't matter what your you know what it is. There's no one pilgrim's better than another pilgrim if you're out there helping humanity. That's where I had this inspiration in the Jerusalem at the end of all of this, reflecting on it, that it's a servant pilgrim. I'm not a seeking pilgrim searching for what do I do with the rest of my life. I'm not a mourning pilgrim getting over some tragedy in my life. I'm not a penitent pilgrim down in the dumps because I've done something heinous. I'm a servant pilgrim. I view the pilgrimage going to hard to get to places in particular because I have the skill sets to do that. And walking at the speed of nature, five kilometers an hour, three miles an hour is what the human body, five feet tall or six feet tall, we're pretty much on that line three miles an hour. And walking the whole day, so that works out to a marathon a day. And isn't it funny, you walk around the world, how many places the villages are a day's walk apart? 40 kilometers apart, 25 to 30 miles apart. And so you just walk that in a day, you spend the day walking in nature, it's very spiritual and transformative and sometimes a bit dangerous, what with wolves and crocodiles and other things. And then you engage with humanity every night, you know, every evening, engaging with the people who live there. And uh, it's just really transformative for everybody. So that's the servant aspect of it. I get something out of it, they get something out of it. And to take the effort, you know, every, all the major religions and so many native spiritualities going back through all time has this concept love your neighbor as yourself, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Well, it's so easy to say when you don't really know your neighbors. <laughs> but when you step out, hey, I'm just from the other side of the planet. <laughs> We're neighbors. <laughs> you go and you meet them and you just stand there and smile at each other and you sit and you have a meal together, share something together. It's just a wonderful experience. It's not for everyone. I think the world needs more pilgrim. I don't know that everyone needs to be a pilgrim. Someone needs to be the pilgrim host. <laughs> But it's an expression of faith, and again, which faith, it doesn't matter. Mine happens to be Roman Catholic, and that helps in the sense that, well, there are Roman Catholic churches or other Eastern Catholic churches, or that's just pretty close to the Orthodox churches. I mean, any church in the the world, I have no inhibition about walking into and saying, hi, I'm a pilgrim. So it's kind of a, a facilitating club, but it's not exclusive club. And it's not to say that because I am a Catholic, all Catholics accept me equally. There are some jerks out there, too. (laughs) And I have to just say, well, Father, if you're not going to allow me to sleep in your parish hall, I'm going next door to the Protestants. (laughs) (laughs) And it's fine, you know, sometimes, often much better. (laughs) Padded pews. I don't know if you know that.
0: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's, that's a big upgrade.
2: It brings people together regardless of everything, regardless of faith or educational level or skin color or culture or language. It just brings people together. So I'm suited for it. I think everyone should be open to the idea of pilgrimage because it's a spiritual journey. You could have that spiritual journey as a bus pilgrim, as a bicycle pilgrim. As a pony pilgrim or as a penniless pilgrim, (laughs) I don't, I'm not going to like make a hierarchy of, you know, you're a real pilgrim, people say to me. It's like, oh, come on, we're all real. (laughs) So it's for me and it's a service. And I've learned you got to go meet the neighbors, whoever the neighbors are. You can't be discriminating against your neighbors. Just go and meet them. And a silent pilgrim, as I said, does the world no good. So to just walk through, I mean, a pilgrim, I'm sure this has been discussed many times. What's the difference between a pilgrim and a tourist? Well, a pilgrim accepts whatever is offered. A tourist demands what they want. A pilgrim will see what's there. A tourist will go and see what they anticipated seeing. You know, so if you put yourself in the mind, a spiritual journey, connecting with humanity, really at a natural pace walking with all your senses a tourist will follow their camera around (laughs) and then afterwards flip through them but a pilgrim you should put that camera away or be very discerning with that camera and just experience it with all your senses when you leap across that little stream and then you taste the mint in your mouth because you just stepped on the wild plants next to the stream or you know you're listening to not just birds but all of the birds you know, and you see that little dung beetle push that little ball of dung up the hill. <laughs> you could do that when you're walking. You won't, you'll just pass that by if you're on a bicycle. And you're kind of too far away if you're on a horse. So this, for me, is a big part of it, is going with all your senses to engage in nature. And then in the evening, engaging with the people there. That, oh, it's an experience. But I know some people, if you don't have the comfort doing that, if you don't have comfort walking where there's no path, or much less a road, don't go, because you'll just be a bundle of nerves. <laughs> but if that's your favorite playground, ugh, there's lots of places. You could be a pilgrim anywhere, as in the 55 countries I've walked through so far. <laughs> <laughs> so I've only been doing it 13 years.
0: <laughs> and a lot of years ahead. So, yes, yeah, uh, not yeah. really. <laughs> I want to spend a chunk of time talking with you about pilgrimage in the US because you've been oh, yeah. charting a lot of routes there. But before we do, I need to ask you about your experience walking through the Darien Gap. Because anyone who has ever looked at a map of, you know, North America, who has ever hazarded the the thought of doing something, you know, across the Americas, they know what that little chunk of land between Colombia and Panama, the the trouble that has caused to the Pan-American Highway, to all kinds of people who want to connect the continents. And if you look online, most people are going to say it's impossible. You just have to boat around it. Right. You walked through the Darien Gap.
2: I did. (laughs) And (laughs) I walked from south to north on another pilgrimage. So after I did Jerusalem, the Holy Land, just a few months later... I went down to Buenos Aires, and I walked from Buenos Aires, Argentina, to the Pacifica of Guadalupe in Mexico City. So pretty much up the west coast of South America and Central America. And it took me 13,000 kilometers. So that's 8,000 miles. By the time I got to Colombia, then, you know, I was asked, I don't, as a pilgrim, I don't want to do anything illegal, of course. But I was asking the Colombian military police, civil police, and the priests and the merchants along the way, you know, direct me. Because most of the world is really not mapped. Roads are mapped, but parts between roads are not mapped. And I do not like to walk on a road. I mean, a little dirt road is fine, but I don't like to walk on any pavement. And so you have to rely on the locals. And so all along the way, I kept asking the locals of all levels, how do I do this? And certainly there were many of the lower levels who were saying, get in the boat, I'll take you. (laughs) I want to like go on the up and up. And the Colombian military just kept pointing me go to this village go to this village and there were many boats like little mango canoes I'd have to take and you always have to bail them hand-carved canoes but you just leak porous and so I'm really connected with the people there and certainly there are people there there are the tribal people there who have always called it home there are what they call the Afro-Colombianos who are kind of descendants of runaway slaves from Brazil 400 years ago and they have their colonies there and there are some church groups there, some missionary groups trying to provide health services, educational services to whoever's there. And then there are also the paramilitary encampments and yeah, other opportunists because there's no law and order. And as far as the Colombian people, you know, military pointed me, then the last guy I was like, Can I get a stamp in my passport? I want to make sure I do that to stamp me out of Colombia. And he just kept pointing me forward. And then he called me back and he gave me a mosquito net and said, you're going to need this. (laughs) And then there is human trafficking going on there and drug trafficking going on. I don't know. You know, I don't look in the containers. (laughs) (laughs) I just kind of got attached with some people who were making a journey towards Panama. At first, they demanded money and I could say, well, I have no money to give you. And they're saying, well, pity, we'll have to kill you now. And I was like, that's not going to (laughs) work because there are people who know I'm here and phone calls will be made if I don't come out the other side. So, yeah, that's not good. So then they let me come along with them, even though other people were paying a lot of money to move some. There was like a group of, I think, seven people and all of them paying a lot of U.S. dollars to be escorted at gunpoint up to I don't know if you know, and the Darien Gap is a famous old French car, Renault or something. I had broken down and rusted because some French film crew in the 60s wanted to drive the whole distance. So that's a monument. That's like the biggest monument in the Darien Gap. (laughs) So they'll take people to that monument and then say you're on your own. So I had broken away from the group by then, and then I got into Panama and found my way it's like there's no roads, there's no path really the path will overgrow like overnight <laughs> and then it's flooded most of the year anyway and so it's a difficult place to travel through but i'm determined so i got through and then the panamanian military well i'll just skip ahead and they made it clear that it wasn't a good thing for me to do so again the u.s embassy got involved <laughs> and i eventually was released <laughs> There's a lot of demands for money. And, you know, I'm a pilgrim. I have no money. So lots of different groups were holding me captive. But I'm not a bad one to hold captive because you know, I'm doing the cooking because I can cook better. And I'm making the coffee and I'll repair the mosquito and <laughs> yeah, I'm going to help out. <laughs> the people holding the guns, they weren't so nasty to me. You know, we got along. But I moved ahead and I would not recommend it. I had a great time. I will turned it into something good. And there was someone, a woman there being trafficked from Ethiopia. And the previous year, I was in North Africa. So I had learned some Arabic. And this poor woman, she was then held captive. And she spoke no Spanish and no English. She had no way to communicate. But when I saw her, and I kind of just looked at her complexion and her mannerism, and I just bowed and spoke to her in Arabic, Asalamu alaykum. May the peace of God be with you. It's a great way to start a conversation. And I was this key person for her to get to safety. So she ended up getting to safety. And because I was so helpful with that language situation, that they kind of went a little easier on me. But don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) While the Colombians seem to be fine with it, the Colombian attitude that I experienced in 2012 was, hey, if you've got the desire and the competence to go, good luck to you then. But the Panamadians are saying, no, there's a whole lot of trouble because the illegal immigrants and the human trafficking goes from Colombia into Panama, so they're the ones who get the brunt of difficulties. But by the time I did get through and got released and was able to continue on my way through Panama, all the military outposts, and there are many, I was famous. They were like, you're the pilgrim who came through the Darien Gap. <laughs>
0: Deservedly so.
2: Oh, yeah. You know, they'd give me cold beer, let me sit in their little air conditioned huts, (laughs) offer to drive me anywhere. But I'm like, no, no, I just want to walk. But, you know, don't do it. There's a lot that can go wrong, a lot.
0: So I think probably 99% of the people listening, if not 100%, are not thinking about going through the Darien Gap.
2: Good. But if you did, it'd be
0: great. Yeah, it would be exciting. (laughs) Uh, If you survive. But hopefully, a lot of people are open to the idea of walking elsewhere in North America. And there are a lot of people in the US listening. And because of COVID in particular, they're thinking about domestic walks, at least in the near future. And for a long time, people haven't even considered the idea of pilgrimage in North America, they'll say, you know, we don't have history in the U.S., we don't have whatever. But you've been doing a lot of work on the idea of pilgrimage in North America, and you've been piloting routes, trying out different approaches. So what is your experience now with pursuing pilgrimage in North America, and what are the kinds of routes that you think that people should check into?
2: There's plenty of wide open field of doing pilgrimage in North America. So I encourage it. As Society of Servants Pilgrims, I have some obligations. One obligation is to be a pilgrim in this way, a mendicant pilgrim. Another is to help other pilgrims. So that's part of my core of existence, what I'm here to do. I do that in generally one of two ways. One is people will contact me and say, hey, can you help pull together a pilgrim route for such and such? You know, sometimes, often enough, it is we've got this great devotion to a particular saint. And can you help us figure out how to connect the places that were important to that saint's life as a pilgrim trail? With the idea, you don't usually want to walk on roads, you know, dirt roads, farm roads, gravel roads. These are OK, but let's not get on I-70, <laughs> the verge be beside it, the grassy lane beside it and walk that. No, 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 no. Just a very nice, tranquil pilgrim route. And there are saints in America. Got to have that. <laughs> you don't have to have a saint, per se. Someone did contact me and ask if I could help pull together a pilgrimage for Elvis Presley. And I said, I don't think I'm the best to help on that. (laughs) (laughs) So one way I help is helping people figure out a route. Another way I help is they say, but you have to go along with us. So then I've done a pilgrim route from Denver to the Santuario de Chimayo in northern New Mexico. And Chimayo is one of the biggest pilgrim destinations for foot pilgrims in the country. Mostly during Holy Week, Holy Thursday, you know, like 10,000 people walk to Chimayo. But there's really there's a whole number of pilgrim routes to get to Chimayo going at various distances up to the 350 miles that I've gone. I've routinely gone between San Luis, Colorado, where there are two Catholic shrines, and Chimayo, where there are also two shrines. And that's a beautiful one. It's a little bit rugged, though I have taken some people in their 70s on it. With the understanding, I'll never leave a pilgrim behind. And, you know, five o'clock, wherever you are and you just can't go on anymore, just sit down. And at five o'clock, I'll send some pickup truck to scoop everybody up. You know, like, I'll, like I'll just hail down a pickup truck and say, hey, would you just go and scoop up these people? <laughs> so that's a rugged one. The really fantastic one I've done now four times is a pilgrimage dedicated to St. Rose Philippine Duchenne who started the Sacred Heart Academies in the U.S. So she came to this country from France in 1818. And eventually she set up a school, the first free school west of the Mississippi in St. Charles, Missouri. And that school is still there and thriving. And there's an old convent there that is a great pilgrim house, let me tell you. <laughs> really fantastic. And the sisters who are there, they're really a lot of fun. So the same sisters that you know came 200 years ago Not the same individuals, but the same community. They're still there doing their thing. And it's a tomb shrine. So that's where she's entombed. But it starts, or the other end, she eventually went to teach and to pray with the Potawatomi Indians. And they had this trail of death forced down from, I think, the Indiana area to this place in very eastern Kansas, not too far from the Missouri border, Sugar Creek. And now it's called Mound City. Bit of an overstatement. Mound, little (laughs) town. But there's a shrine there, um, the Shrine of the Sacred Heart. And so we've gathered there. I've done it twice in autumn and twice in springtime. And to start there and walk to her tomb is in total 330 miles or so. The first section, so I think it's seven or eight days, is on these dirt country roads, You go through farmland, there's cows on the one side, horses on the other. You go through a little uh, bird sanctuary for a day, walking through that, very tranquil, very pretty. And then the next stage is you get on the end of the Katy Trail, which is one of these rail-to-trails. So this is perfect pilgrim land because it's broad and flat and doesn't deal with traffic and there are park benches along the way. It's really quite user-friendly. And that goes through the countryside and then... You cross the Missouri River and still on the Katy Trail. And then it's right alongside the Missouri River the rest of the way. So you're at the bluff of the Missouri River. You're on the north side of the Missouri River. So left bank. And, you know, there's like information signs. Daniel Boone did his thing here or Lewis and Clark camped here. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's very relaxing. The stages are, because it's train line, stages are average 13 miles a day. The 13 miles of flat going a day, it's a lot of fun. I really think it's very Camino-esque, and it's really quite like the support system, the infrastructure that the Camino de Santiago, the Camino Frances, had maybe 20 years ago or 30 years ago, before the giant yellow (laughs) arrows. But this one, you can't get lost. you got to try hard to get lost.
0: It's a straight line. I walked it last fall, and yeah, yeah. same same experience. Oh,
2: did you go through Tebbets? You must have. I did. And three miles upstream of Tebbets, on the Katy Trail, there is a park bench now dedicated to the pilgrims of St. Rose, Philippine Duchenne.
0: I wish I would have noticed that.
2: <laughs> but you would have stayed in Tebbets, because that's the only trail shelter, they call it, and mm-hmm. that's just like a pilgrim house. The yep. bunk beds the small shower (laughs) stall. So these communities have all come together. These are 13-mile stages, more or less. Half the nights pretty much are in Catholic communities, Catholic parish halls, and half in the Protestants. Remember, padded pews. (laughs) We like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then with the Tebbit Trail Shelter. And the communities are so accustomed to us now, they have been telling me, send more pilgrims. Send more pilgrims, send more pilgrims. And you know, I really like the idea of the pilgrim credential. You know, every night where you go, you get yourself stamped. I mean, it doesn't have to be anything fancy. Many places in the US they don't have they have embossers, not stamps. We're working on them on the Katy Trail there. They're, they're getting more stamp. But you know, they'll look, they'll ask for that. And so you just get a little notebook or on the Society of Servants Pilgrims website, there's a lot of description about this trail and you could print out your own little pilgrim credential to have along the way as your little momentum. This one is very Camino-esque, very Camino-esque. And the Amtrak kind of comes close at three different intervals. So if you don't want to, or you can't, or logistically, it's too much in one go to do the 325 or 330 miles, that's 26 days of walking. Come on. An 80-year-old man did it with me and a 76-year-old with a pacemaker and an internal defibrillator. (laughs) I mean, this is as broad as it can be for you know a lot of different people. There's lots of wildlife. There's lots of flowers and stuff. So we had a, a watercolorist come with us once and she just loved it. She zoomed on ahead and then would just sit for an hour or two doing her sketches. You're peaceful, at peace. It's very much of a pilgrimage because you're not stressing about time and distance and traffic and where am I going to go? It should be because it's like the Camino had been years ago. If you can call the places a a day or a week or sometime in advance to say, I'm a pilgrim and I'm going to come and ask to stay in your parish hall, they'll now know what you're talking about and be quite accommodating. This autumn, we're planning on it again, October 24th meeting in Mound City, and arriving at St. Charles on the morning of November 18th, because that's the feast day of the St. Rose Philippine. We're assuming that by autumn, everything with the COVID will be a bit relaxed. And because we have these relationships with the hosts along the way, like they know what to expect. And I think with social distancing and documenting who's where, in case there's some second wave outbreak and you need to do the contact list stuff, Like we would have the documents there to help allay their concerns. But we do it in the autumn because arriving on her feast day, then there's a party at the school. And then the springtime one, that would start, I think it's April 21st or so. And then we arrive. So it coordinates with the school celebration of Mary Day. And then all of the children get engaged because they'll be tracking us the whole way, you know, as a group. Now, a lot of people have now gone on this Two others. I'm not, I don't plan myself on going this autumn, but two others who have already experienced it, they'll take on the coordination for this autumn. I don't know if we're going to have someone volunteering to take on the coordination next spring, but I hope it gets to the point where people can just go on their own. You don't have to be part of an organized group. You have to be polite and call ahead because these are small towns and some of them don't have grocery stores. So a few of them, you want to bring your own groceries with you and there'll be a kitchen available. And some, they'll just say, well, you just tell us how many there are and we'll have a potluck. (laughs) The community comes together. And that's, again, the Servant Pilgrim concept. Some of the places have commercial lodging. So hotels or bed and breakfast, motel. Some of them are bigger. Certain people like that. It's Camino-esque. It really is. And almost not every place, but there are different zones along it where when you look at your device for Google Maps to see distances, Google Uberman raises his hand and, you know, he'll come and scoop you up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you go through some vineyards toward the end there. You're walking through vineyards. So, I mean, it's not Spain. There are no ancient forts, but it's a really great domestic pilgrim route. There are others in this country. In, the, in Wisconsin, there are three shrines that can be connected. There are some foot trails connecting portions of it, but mostly it's on dirt roads. You kind of figure your own way out. So that's the Wisconsin way. And there was a very gung-ho priest up there, Father Kurtz. So he, if you just Google wisconsinway.com, because he takes people by van, some sections of it, because he likes to talk. (laughs) But I, I did all three in like three weeks. I went really fast. I wouldn't recommend going so fast, but it's really beautiful country. So that's another option, the Wisconsin Way. I was in upstate New York, and there are some shrines, two shrines on opposite sides of the Mohawk River. So you're walking on the towpath for the Erie Canal. So that goes to Fonda, New York, where the shrine of St. Kateri, Takatwitha, and Orisville, New York, which is the shrine of Our Lady of the Martyrs. Again, a pilgrim just has to have a destination. If you want Elvis, take Elvis. (laughs) (laughs) My world are saints. (laughs) But a pilgrim must have a destination. I think a pilgrimage must have an openness to a spiritual element even if you're vague on what that means, we're all vague on what that means. I think for a pilgrimage to be successful or the pilgrim to be ready to begin the pilgrimage, it takes three things. You've got to have a conversion of heart. You know, like you really got to want to do it as a pilgrimage. If it's a bucket list thing purely, go hike the Appalachian Trail. If you're open to this commitment to the spiritual side of it, it starts in your heart, not in your mind. So a conversion of heart. And a commitment to the destination because there are many beautiful places in the world or many beautiful places where it rains for days <laughs> and other distractions that could keep you from the destination if you don't really want to get there. And then finally, an openness, not controlling it all where you plan in advance every stage and every place you're going to go and stay and try to make reservations. That's starting to look pretty much like tourism. And if you're open to You just met some really great people. You were planning on staying at the parish hall, but these really great people said, Hey, come up to our house, stay the night with us. We're having this little party. You go with them. You don't say, No, no, no. I've committed myself to this other direction. You know, you're open to forces of the universe, the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. You need that openness. So conversion of heart, commitment to the destination and an openness to the forces. And you're going to be ready for a good pilgrimage rather than tourism. That's my two cents.
0: Over this last year, it was the first time that I've actually done any longer distance walking in the U.S. I've always done pilgrimages abroad. And it was really striking to be doing it in this context. It just it it hadn't even I I hadn't really thought through what it would be like and how different it would be, but also how familiar it would be in in certain ways.
2: And in English language.
0: <laughs> in the English language, I could get an omelet and hash browns for breakfast. It was incredible. <laughs> what What has stood out to you, having gone on pilgrimage through 55 different countries? And I know that you, you spent a lot of time in Europe over the course of your life. Yeah. But what has stood out to you the most about walking on pilgrimage in the U.S.?
2: In Western Europe... Where this style of walking pilgrimage with the Pilgrim Credential, I'm a big proponent of the Pilgrim Credential, because it demonstrates who you are, it allows you to show people, and it relaxes them right away. You don't want to frighten people, and that Pilgrim Credential is a great conversation starter. Mine, I just make an ID with my passport information and photo, and where my destination is, where I started, and I have it signed and stamped by the Archbishop of Denver so I get it an in. <laughs> and the Society of Servant Pilgrims, I can arrange that. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. I mean, you can have your local pastor or mayor or your best buddy or your wife sign, you know, just says somebody witnesses that you are this person. And I laminated in my little book. And this is a huge thing. And I've walked from here and they can see, usually in this country, like I say, we don't have stamps. I ask, to sign it with the date and the town and the church or the entity, whatever, the fire station. (laughs) So that then in the next town, they'll say, oh, I know that guy, or I know that church or something. It makes them feel at ease. So that's the pilgrim credentials, my thing. Of course, in the heartland of the U.S., few people know what a pilgrim credential is. So step one, generally in the English language, I tell them. (laughs) And, and that starts the conversation. And then I say, you know, what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And so many are, well, don't stand out on the front step. Come on in, dear. <laughs> Have a cup of coffee and here's a pie I just baked. You, you know, just the friendliness. But that friendliness can only begin when it was preceded by friendliness, you know. And so in the U.S., I mean, the friendliest things about the U.S. are the dogs will follow me for miles. Hey, you want to play? Let's go play. We're going for a walk. (laughs) But, you know, sometimes people are suspicious to see a stranger walking down a gravel road. So you smile and you wave. And here's getting back to that self-sufficiency idea. You know, we want to be self-sufficient because we're Americans. But I carry very little water. Now, often it's because I'm in winter and the water will just freeze. But as a standard, I carry very little water with me. Because that gives me a real reason to go, if I see somebody out working in their yard or getting their mail or something, I can say, oh, you hoo I'm a pilgrim, I'm out walking today, can I get some water please? And that begins the conversation. And then they've got the bragging rights. And you can be sure the minute you get your water and leave, even if you just take it out of the hose, which I'm always happy about, you know, that then they're calling everybody. Hey, well, the darndest thing, I just met a pilgrim. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and so you want to be that one who engages with people rather than the one causing suspicion. So if I take that active effort being aware of that to allay any kind of concerns, I, you know, come by a, a small town, hey, again, I usually go in winter, I'll step right into that mayor's office, the town hall or something to warm up to use the bathroom to get a cup of coffee and to tell the people who I am and what I'm doing. That goes so far. And the smaller the town, I mean, in an instant, you know, everybody. U.S., probably even more so than Western Europe, but U.S., there's hardly something that can be called a town or a hamlet even if it doesn't have a church. It could be a town of one. It's got a church. And so these churches, if they don't have the church basement where the, you know, the little parish hall is, the community hall, then it's the choir loft, which usually holds the heat. I like them. <laughs> Little tricks of the trade here. But, you know, so if I just go into a community and say, well, okay, I've walked from this other place. I've walked already 28 miles today. I need a place to sleep here tonight. May I sleep in the church? Can you tell me who will authorize that I can sleep in the church? And that gives them the opportunity to say, well, you can sleep in the church, but it's kind of cold. Let me bring you some blankets. Well, you know what? Instead of my bringing you blankets, why don't you just come home with me a year? You know, because I've got empty bedrooms, you know? But if I just say, may I sleep in the church? Because there's always a church. And sometimes I'll go to the town hall, find the little town hall worker and say, hey, do you know who I can talk to about sleeping in that church? And they'll make every effort to call around everyone they know. Smaller the town, the more they're going to know. <laughs> and then they'll just end up saying, you know what, if you just need a place to sleep, you could just sleep here in the community hall. We don't care. In all of these places, it's, again, general statement. They'll say, help yourself to whatever's in the fridge. Smell it first. I can't be held responsible. (laughs) So people are friendly, and especially these small towns, they really want the opportunity that their church can provide a service to someone in need. And again, I'm pretty trustworthy, and I've got my, just because of my small size, and I've got my credential, and often enough in the Pilgrim credential, people will write other things, and they'll write their phone number or their email address or whatever, and they'll say, if tomorrow night, if you have any trouble, have them call me. And they do. because You know, they're just curious. They get, hey, I got to host the Pilgrim tonight. It really brings the community together. Maybe because English is my strongest language, it's not my only language, but I pick up more of the nuances of the excitement that it generates. But people are good. People are good everywhere. And I know our nation's not in the greatest place to demonstrate that right now, but hold on, people are good. Give them a chance to be good. And when it's a small town, I don't often go to bigger cities or even medium-sized cities. They're too confusing. I don't like urban walking so much. I like to be out crossing the barbed wire fences (laughs) and just walking down by a stream or something. But the smaller the town generally, the happier people are to see you. And that's whether it's the U.S., or the Russian steppes, or Argentina. I mean, it's all of, all over. Japan as well. I, I was a pilgrim all around Japan. Great. So it's kind of universal. People are good.
0: Yeah, nothing made me more optimistic and feel better about this country than walking through it and walking through the heartland. And nothing has made me more pessimistic than now sitting at home and watching um, cable news. So it's, I, uh, <laughs> it's striking how that works. Yeah. So to wrap up, as you've mentioned, you know, it's a it's a difficult time here in the U.S. And, and all over the world right now. One of the great blessings of your pilgrimages, I think, is that you are exposed to the goodness of people. So maybe we could wrap up with you sharing one or two of the many stories that stand out in your memory that make you optimistic about humanity.
2: Oh, and there are, of course, thousands of stories to pull from. If I'm going to go down to one, and it's probably the one people almost are tired of my saying, because it so exemplifies the goodness of humanity, especially right where you don't expect it. And as I was walking from Denver to Mexico City, as I was approaching, I was in New Mexico, approaching Juarez, El Paso, Juarez is where I crossed into Mexico and then across the Chihuahua Desert that even in the U.S., the priests and these these people were telling me, you can't go, you're going to die. People are dangerous. You don't understand. It's dangerous. You just don't get it. I'm not going to let you go. And I'm like, it'll be fine. God protects pilgrims. It says so. (laughs) So maintaining that, I crossed into Juarez and then second or third day into the Chihuahua Desert, some sand dunes. I came out of that and then really rugged mountains, rocks, lots of animated vegetation, you know, the beyond the cactus and the mesquite and rattlesnakes and scorpions, yada, yada, yada. (laughs) Mountain lions, I saw them. But I don't walk anywhere near a road because again, then I'm very vulnerable. If people see a lone woman from a distance, they'll think I'm a kid because I'm small. (laughs) It's Just no fair, but it's the way it is. It's too vulnerable. So I'm happy just walking south without a road, just across the desert, can't get lost, walk south what can happen? And I did actually have a copy of a 300-year-old map showing where the Franciscans back in the day used to come up. And there were little indicators on the map where there was like a watering station to support the Franciscan missionaries. And I kept asking people, are they really there? Are they still there? And no one could tell me. So I just took the chance that they would be, and hey, they are. (laughs) And there's like a little cluster of little adobe huts that are hard to see on Google Earth or you know Google Maps, but people are there and they're very friendly and helpful and everything. But they have a tough life too. I mean, they've got to protect themselves. But anyway, I was out walking and some modified pickup came by. Who had seen my, you can't hide your footprints in the sand. <laughs> and so it was modified with these big tires to drive over the rocky desert, the rocky sandy desert off-road. And on the back mounted, four assault weapons mounted in the bed of this truck with four men with bandoliers and sidearms and all of these they were scary looking. And then pulled around to the south side of me in the direction I was going. The four men jumped out of the cab. So now it's facing south into the sun. So I'm looking all around, the four men, automatic weapons right at my head, bandoliers, pistols on the side. Here's a little difficulty. If you can't laugh at your own language failures, you know, who can? I didn't know the word for weapon. I didn't know the word for assault rifle. I only knew the word pistole. Now you a little pistol. You don't need your little pistols. <laughs> These guys were an army. They were so like aggressive, circling me all with their weapons directly at me. I mean, very close proximity. And so I looked around smiling the whole time, stayed relaxed. Okay, control the conversation. It was absurd. It was over the top. One man with one little pistol could have handled the situation. (laughs) You didn't need eight men heavily armed to take care of one unarmed little pilgrim. So I found the oldest guy there and I was like, are you the boss in Spanish? Bad Spanish. Are you the boss? And I just he had this weapon directed right in my face and I just kept pushing it away. Like, stop that. I want to look at you. Push this away. He just didn't like me touching his weapon, but it was in my way. And I just said, are you the boss? And I was so calm and smiling. And they're all shouting, who are you, where are you from, what's in your backpack, who else is with you, where are you going, all these questions at once, in Spanish. And I'm like, calm down, everybody, put your, weapon, put your pistols down, put your little pistols down. <laughs>
1: it's like,
2: boss, jefe, look, I'm a pilgrim. I've come from Denver, and I'm going to the Basilica of Guadalupe. And at the word Guadalupe, the men I could see, because I'm behind me, but the men I could see put their weapon aside so that they could cross themselves, as good Catholics would. And then the boss is shouting at me, he's like, are you crazy? Are you gringa loca? Are you just some crazy woman? What is going on? I said, look, either my pilgrimage ends at Guadalupe or my pilgrimage ends in heaven. Either way, I'm okay. You decide. And the man paused just for a moment, just a slight pause. He looked at me and then he kind of looked beyond me and he put his weapon down and he said, hey, pilgrim, would you pray for me?
1: <laughs>
2: ah. And I said, I have this little booklet. I collect prayer intentions, which is a very Latino thing, you know, intenciones. So, sure. And I passed around the book. And he goes, oh, oh, well, then don't pray for me. Pray for my little boy, Jose, because I don't want him growing up into this life. This man was my age. The other men were half. The other men were late teens, early 20s. I mean, there's some narco involved protectionists of their zone of the desert. I don't know their lives. I can't judge everything in that man's life, this boss man, Jose's dad, because I didn't get his name. <laughs> but his little boy Jose, So Jose's dad, I don't know what in his life led up to that point on that side of his weapon compared to what led in my life that I was on this side of that weapon. You know, it's like we both have about the same years of the earth and different stories. And there we are encountering each other in the desert. And he wanted me instead to pray for his little boy. There's a heart behind that. I can't judge him. You know, we can say, oh, you got to love your enemies as well. You know, it's not enough to love those who love you back. Until that moment, I never really thought I had enemies. But the narcotraficantes of the Chihuahua Desert really aren't my friends. <laughs> <laughs> but I exhibited trust. I mean, I had to. eight big pistoles. <laughs> pointed at me that, you know, you trust. If I face this kind of aggression with aggression, I'm going to die. If I face this kind of aggression with defiance, you can't do that to me. I'm an American. Bang. I'm a pilgrim. Whatever. Defiance won't get you into the conversation. If I address that kind of aggression with fear, I mean, that's the worst thing possible. You'd face the aggression with a calm smile. Let's talk about this. And so, okay, lessons learned. Well, he's saying, well, pilgrim, Our Lady of Guadalupe, Mexico City is a long way off. Get in the truck. We'll drive you there. I'm like, no, I'm a pilgrim. Oh, yeah. A promessa. You got to walk. Yeah. So he's now my advocate. He's now on my side and all the other guys. They're passing around my little prayer intention book. One young man, I heard him say, Oh, would you pray for my grandma? Because my grandma's always praying for me. And yes, young man. <laughs> And and then he said, well, where are you? Are you camping or where are you going tonight? And I said, well, I have this idea of where I can find some, a little village um, tonight. He thinks for a moment. He goes, oh, I'm sure I know it. Get in the truck. We'll take you there. I was like, dude, I can't show we are men. I'm on my own. He's like, well, we got to do something for you. So I took some water. And then he said, Pilgrim, you're protected. I don't know that he was referring to God protecting me. (laughs) (laughs) I think he put word out. At least in his zone of influence, no one touches that pilgrim. <laughs> so I don't know. You know, this is an extreme. Could have gone either way. I mean, anyway. But to have a tense situation and smile and then have this otherwise bad guy say something so kind about praying for his little son that he doesn't want him to grow into this life. And another bad guy saying, pray for my grandma because my grandma prays for me. You know. You can't judge people's stories. Just take them where you are, standing right there, looking at them in the eye and smiling. Ah, again, like the Darien Gap, I'm not recommending people go out and solicit this kind of adventure. <laughs> but that's one that just was a moment that's never going to leave me because I trusted that guy and it all worked out. If I didn't trust him, I probably have been well picked apart by the birds <laughs> in the Chihuahua desert. <laughs> Long ago, but ah, it's great. It's a great service, it's a great way of encountering humanity, not being afraid. And you let go of that concept of fear, prudence is good, prudence, but it's all going to work out.
0: That's awesome. And I could easily talk to you for I don't know how many hours. I just, I, yeah. you, have, you have so many stories, <laughs> but thank you for spending a little bit of time with me.
2: I'm happy to. And again, if we get back to the North American pilgrimages, com people can contact me. Now, if I'm off on pilgrimage, you're not going to get a quick response, but people can contact me through that. And there are some others who help me out with that website. And um, St. Rose Philippine Duchenne pilgrimage, you can look and there's an interactive map that shows the stages that we've used in the past and that kind of thing. So it's a tool. It's for uh, all pilgrims. We want pilgrims to be pilgrims and the world needs more pilgrims.
0: While we have a long way to go in the USA to reach anything resembling the pilgrimage network and infrastructure that exists in Europe, you can really see the beginnings of something good. Way back in episode eighteen, I spoke with Ron and Steph about the California Mission Trail, an eight hundred plus mile route that links together the state's twenty-one famous missions. And now you've heard Ann talk about the pilgrimage to the Santuario de Chimayo in New Mexico the Wisconsin Way, and the Shrine of St. Rose Philippine in Missouri. These are four routes with strong advocates and real momentum behind them. Sure, they're not the Camino yet, but it's a sea change from where we were a decade ago. If you're considering the St. Rose Philippine pilgrimage in particular, there's a wealth of information available. Anne's site is invaluable, of course, for an overview of the full route, and an interactive Google Map with accommodation information. Beyond that, since the pilgrimage overlaps significantly with the well-established Katy Trail, you can find all kinds of stuff linked to that. The best resource I found is bikekatytrail.com, and Katy is spelled K-A-T-Y. As the name suggests, it's primarily oriented towards bicyclists, as the Katy draws many more people on two wheels than on two feet. But the info is just as good for walkers. While you'd want to look elsewhere for historical and cultural details, and there's some really interesting towns and villages sprinkled along the way, those two sites otherwise have everything you need to plan a walk. There's been a lot of attention paid to the economic hit currently being suffered by Camino businesses, and rightfully so. But man, the Katy Trail folks have gotten crushed. Not only will most of their 2020 season get wiped out by COVID, they lost the summer of 2019 to heavy flooding on the Missouri River. If you can bring some business their way, it would not go amiss. That's all for this episode. Thanks again to Anne Sieben for speaking with me. You can find her pilgrimage blog at winterpilgrim.blogspot.com. Meanwhile... You can learn about the Society of Servant Pilgrims at societyofservantpilgrims.com. That site includes descriptions on the North American pilgrimages that Anne described, as well as information on how you can join one of her groups. The Camino Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. You can reach me at caminopodcast at gmail.com or through the Camino Podcast Facebook page. And you can find episode production notes at davewoodson.com. Thank you, as always, for listening.